The Higher Side Chats doesn't start with underwear ads or guilt-tripping donation pleas, nor would I ever commit the cardinal sin of podcasting and interrupt the flow mid-show to show you an unrelated sponsor. But the free first-hour episodes do have to start with a little PSA before we get into it to ever so quickly remind slash inform listeners both old slash new that you're about to get into what I'm sure is a great first hour of a high-level interview, but that means you're missing half the show. If you like what we do around here, get yourself a THC Plus membership and listen to the full two-hour interviews as they were really designed to be and as I know you would enjoy them most. Give a little and actually get a little more in return of the thing you're actually engaging with. Five episodes every month, plus forum access, community comments, downloads to all the closing cover songs, a plus show RSS feed to use with any private RSS feed supported app, and the occasional joint session bonus shows, which include the messages you might leave me about your own theories, experiences, or otherworldly encounters at thehiresidechats.com slash voicemail. If you're not quite sure, if you just want to feel us out, or if you're only here for this particular episode, no worries. New first-time subscribers get a seven-day free trial when you sign up at thehiresidechats.com. Cancel anytime. Try it out, because it's so important to feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go. And with that said, let's get on with it already, huh? In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go, Higher Side Chatters from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and we know the controller class can be quite crafty in widening the chasm between them and us. They lower the standards in education, they promote media consumption at a level they would never allow at home, they seed health-draining iPads and digital technologies in the classroom, and they infuse the public water supply with toxic chemicals. Of course, it might be more exciting to talk about MKUltra mind control and alien bases on the dark side of the moon, but where the rubber really meets the road when it comes to being controlled and ground down by the big machine is their attack on the health of your body and the strength of your mind. By steering you wrong in terms of diet, crafting addictive nutrient-devoid frankenfood to replace what you need, and using harsh petrochemical pills to fill the gaps you're missing and subdue the very signals from your body that something is wrong. Pile on the very real reality of overprescription, and it becomes clear that someone or something atop the Western medical system and the very intertwined food industry is intentionally driving more death and in more subversive ways than many of us are even aware of. While today's guest, Dr. Jennifer Daniels, is certainly aware of all these things and more, and she is widely considered one of the leading alternative health physicians alive. She graduated from Harvard University with honors, and her education continued at the University of Pennsylvania, where she received her medical degree and also attended Wharton, where she received her MBA in healthcare administration. She practiced medicine for 10 years as a board-certified family practice physician where she saw firsthand the power of natural methods which led to her creating her well-known product, Vitality Capsules. She has also been coaching clients to successfully heal naturally since 1985, and she is the author of the award-winning book, Do You Have the Guts to Be Beautiful? 
as well as the very bold and blunt book, The Lethal Dose, Murder by Medicine is No Accident. It is a true honor to have her here, the pharmaceutical complex whistleblower, turpentine truth teller, and the naturopathic practitioner expat from Panama, Dr. Jennifer Daniels. Welcome to the higher side. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> yes, this is a big day for me. I just have so much respect for what you do and your perspective, and I am excited to get to share it with the audience here. I know almost every interview starts with your story, but we got to do that too. As I mentioned, you are in Panama now, but clearly you were educated and practicing in the U.S. Yep. To get us going here, tell people the story of your medical career and just how you ended up leaving the country. <laughs> well, it's pretty much the story of the truckers. It's the identical same story. Ah. So I went to Harvard. I was admitted with great fanfare. I was a Radcliffe National Scholar, which means they felt when they admitted me, I was among the 5% most outstanding students admitted that year. Very big honor. National Merit Scholar as well. Graduated with honors cum laude. When I was in my third year of Harvard, it became very obvious that I was going to get into medical school at excellent grades. Everything is going well. I said, well, let me go to the world-famous Widener Library. You can look it up. And I want to research how doctors can help people live longer because I want to be a really good doctor. I want to do a great job. And so I went to this library, which is internationally famous, which in order to get into it, it takes a permit. If you're not a student, people actually pay monthly fees to access the library. It's quite an amazing thing. And back then in the 70s when I went there, they had documents that were not permitted for the public to see. So I went to the library to look up this thing and I spent hours there. And what did I find? That in 1978, 77, there was zero evidence that medical care, medical intervention extended the length of anyone's life by even a day. Mm. That's why I said, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, uh, well, what does extend life? So then I researched that. And extending a person's life is super simple. It's clean water, clean food, shelter, and sanitation. That's it. It's a whole ball of wax. I said, oh, <laughs> interesting. So should I become an architect or something? I mean, what's going on here? And then I said, okay, fine. I'm so far along. Things are going so well. I'm going to go to medical school, and surely they will mention this. <laughs> Not a word. Not a word. But medical school was really troubling because I didn't see anybody get better based on our interventions. And every intervention, it was presumed that it would fail. We had a secondary backup intervention and so on and so on. And we never solved any problem. Every disease had no cause and no cure. And so by the time I graduated, I realized it didn't take four years to teach me no cause, no cure. Take this pill. See me every three months for life. No matter what the affliction, that's the answer. So I was not happy, but also I planned to go back to my inner city area and practice medicine in the same neighborhood I grew up in. So at the end of each year, when the cures failed to materialize, I went to the dean and said, hey, what's the problem here? Where's the cures? You know, I came here to learn how to get people better. Was, ah, nah, 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 nah. Next semester, next semester, next semester. And finally, next semester became, well, graduation time. And then when I went to see him, he said, well, have you ever thought? I said, well, I'm going back to the ghetto. They don't do malpractice. They get even. It is not safe for me to take this kind of useless information back to that environment. 
He said, well, have you ever thought about not going back to the ghetto? Maybe you should go practice someplace else. Hmm. What? They said, well, okay, okay, okay. That's not a good answer. Next year when you go to residency, you'll learn the real cures. I said, okay, okay, okay. So I packed my bags, lost a residency. And that's what the lethal dose is based on, what happened in residency. I mean, it was carnage. It was just death, murder, and mayhem. I'm like, whoa. I actually turned in my letter of resignation. But the head honcho at the hospital said, well, what do we got to do to make you stay? I said, well, well, what do you mean? He said, well, what do you want? I said, well, I'll tell you what. I want to get certified to practice medicine at the end of my year. That's why I'm here. I want that. So, okay, great. Got it. And I want either the doctors to stop hassling me or if they do, I get to hassle them right back. He says, absolutely. You can tell them anything you want. You got my permission. Tell them off. Curse them out if you like it. I said, okay, good. He said, and if you see orders written that are damaging to the patient, you don't have to follow them. Let someone else follow them. I said, okay, fine. Good, 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 good. Because what had happened in the lethal dose, the book, is this patient had been absolutely destroyed. I'm like, okay, that's it. Last straw. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. And so when they agreed to do those things, I said, okay, fine. I'll stay. And I finished my year, graduated, and went on to my National Service Corps obligation, an Indian reservation for three years, had my first baby, went into medical practice. And so the reservation was important because I was the medical director and we had a global budget. In other words, if I recommended a medicine, we had the pharmacy right there. We could dispense it before they left. We had a tight-knit family on the reservation. So if we prescribe something for person A, person B, C, D, E, all got involved to make sure they took their medicine. So we didn't have an income problem. We didn't have a compliance problem, which is the reason medical school told me no one got better. And still no one got better. I'm like, ooh, that's bad. And then I went on and returned to the ghetto I grew up, bought a city block, built a medical office building, opened my practice. And the first three years of the practice, I pretty much followed the standard of care. I noticed a few people died, but we were told in medical school people die, yeah, yeah. But then I said, okay, let me review the charts of people who died to see if there's something I can do better. Without fail, every single dead person was on medications, number one. Two, had seen a specialist who reviewed and adjusted those medications. And three, the patient was totally compliant, never missed an appointment or a test. Well, so all of my disobedient, non-compliant patients, they all live, but the compliant ones died. I said, whew, that's, that's not good. So then I um, gave everyone a choice between natural stuff, doing nothing, standard of care, you know, dietary changes. And when I gave people a choice, I told them, you don't have to take these medicines. If you feel uncomfortable while taking them, you can stop the medicines. The death rate in the practice went to zero. And by the 10th year of my practice, I was prescribing no medicines at all. I was not prescribing medicines. And I also, I lived in the same ghetto where my office was. And I had kids during this time. And so, of course, I was interested in things like the murder rate, right? I was not happy with that. <laughs> so I got involved in demolishing drug dens and got the murder rate down to zero. Then... I wasn't happy with this $30 million bond issue. 
Right. I had an MBA from Wharton, so I understood finance a bit more than the average individual. And so after really investigating this, I found out, holy crap, this is not a bond issue. This is a $30 million bank heist. So stupid me, I had no idea. I decided, well, I need to report this bank robbery to the authorities. <laughs> <laughs> right? So I reported to the authorities only to find out that they were the ones robbing the bank. And then I said, well, let me tell the bank that they're being robbed. See what they think. Oh, my God. The bank was furious. And so the bank stopped the bank heist. And then basically, long story short, I lost my license. And I was put on a terrorist list and two do not employ lists. So I was where the truckers are. I had no right to work. Then my bank accounts started getting seized. Then people I did business with, their accounts started getting seized. So basically I ended up where the Canadian truckers are, but mm, you know, 15, actually 20 years earlier. <laughs> Right. And that's a great analogy to draw for sure. And there are so many little aspects to the story in the book that are just mind blowing that this is how a person is attacked. One of the things I was going to mention is when you tried to fly, it seemed like your ticket would have this symbol on it. That's like four S's. Right, and right. talk to us about that. What was your airport experience like during this time? Oh, it was terrifying. It was horrific. So you know, you buy your ticket and you go up to the counter and, well, first of all, you go to the counter and they ask you to see your passport. Okay, fine. And then they swipe your passport and something comes up on their screen. I have no idea what it is, but this lady, something came up on her screen and her eyes got really wide, like, <gasps> and she just froze and she went to get the supervisor and she brought the supervisor to the screen and pointed to the screen. Supervisor looked at the screen, looked at me. I guess she figured out I couldn't be that harmless or that harmful. Whatever the screen was showing, <laughs> I had no idea to this day. And she said to the ticketing agent, give her the ticket. They'll take care of it at security. So now I have a little bit of stress, right? So I go to security and they ask for my ticket, which has four S's on it. And, it's, and then he takes his highlighter and highlights the four S's in yellow. Then he asked for my passport, and then now that's not enough. I need a driver's license. Okay, you'll give me that too. And then the PA system starts blaring airport security, emergency gate, whatever, which is where I was. And I see these people in black uniform with police written in big letters all over them running. I mean, they're going a pretty fast clip with nightsticks and guns and everything. Oh my gosh. Like, oh my God, they're coming for me. <laughs> Oh, you can imagine, right? Right. So meanwhile, this guy who's, you know, pushed the proper panic buttons has told me, oh, you can go ahead. And so I go ahead. And they have all these different security things they do. You know, they, they x-ray your luggage. Fine. There was nothing suspicious. Then they say, step over here. And they open my luggage and start throwing my clothes around and yelling and screaming at me. And then they have this long stick with the cotton something on it. And they swab your computer. I didn't know what that was, but now I know that that's them looking for cocaine or drug residues in your computer. So if you ever use drugs, like, I don't know, since you own the computer, it's going to screen positive for drugs. And then they have the next pretense to take you to, I don't know what's next. 
but I never used drugs. So I didn't find anything. So then they start yelling at me and screaming and demanding, why am I traveling? Where am I going? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, look, we got a problem here of security. I'm a patriotic American. I will strip nude right here just for my country. I want to make sure it's a safe place. <sighs> and then they have a meltdown as I start taking my clothes off. So this was the ordeal each time that I flew. Man. And it was just overwhelming. I and mean, it's a lot to go through. I mean, even telling it, it's like, oh. <laughs> I can imagine. So you are put on two do not hire lists. Right. You are put on this terrorist watch list. Right. And it seems like it has more to do with you uncovering this little bit of corruption than it does the things you were doing in your medical practice. But Well, the government controls the doctor's licensure. Mm -hmm. And this is what makes your doctor nothing more than a government agent. He's not working for you no matter how much money you pay your doctor. He's working for the government. Yes, that's a great point. He's working to keep his license. So what happened when I, as I say, got out of my lane and got involved in this bank heist, I thought I was just being a good citizen. I mean, the $30 million bank robbery, that's a lot of money, you know. So I just thought I was being a responsible citizen. But obviously, I was seriously naive. I had totally miscalculated the whole situation. So what happens though, since the government controls licensure, is they can make it about licensure. And just the same way we have total media congruity in terms of the fictitious story over the past two years, there is a total media. I mean, you think the government owned the media. I don't know. Every single media is, you know, Dr. Daniels is a danger. Board is investigating. I'm like, oh my God, did I do something wrong? <laughs> what happened? And so ultimately they said, look, we want to see the charts of the 5,000 patients who ever saw you during your 10 years of medical practice. And this is basically tantamount to really freezing the accounts of anyone who ever sent you money, right? So now they get to investigate every single patient I have using their medical records as a weapon. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're stopping it right here. Whatever you guys got to do to me, you're going to do to me. But there's no way I'm going to allow you to violate and abuse people who have supported me and fed my family over these 10 years. I just walk away. That's, that's what takes to keep a license. I don't need one. Man. So you get pushed out and you have to decide where to go. And I think more and more people are considering a move out of the United States. I know I am. So I like to ask when I have a guest who's okay, done let's it. Let's back up the rest of the story. So let's, let's be honest here. So at 2000 is when I lost my license. From 2000 to 2008, I thought I could work things out. I thought, hey, it's my country. I'm a patriotic citizen. And surely we can get things set to right. No. <laughs> so by the time 2008 rolled around, I was unable to sleep at night, not knowing when the government would maybe break down my door and disappear me. I didn't know when the next time was I would be called into court over who knows what. It was just a terrifying, absolutely terrifying. So I couldn't sleep at night and I was terrified during the day. And I realized that I just I always say I realized that's not true. I had a friend who was from Africa. He's married and had kids. And he invited me and my kids to his house one day. And they were my patients as well. So he invited me to his house. And so while my kids played with his kids and I guess talked with his wife or whatever, he asked me to please go in the kitchen with him. And I said, oh, okay. So he went to the kitchen. He sat me down. He says, you've got to leave the country. You don't have a choice. It's time to go. 
you know, I'm from Africa. I've seen this before. When the government does this, you have to leave. You don't have a choice. I said, oh, my goodness. Well, where should I go? He said, you should go to Central or South America. I said, really? What country? He says, it doesn't really matter. He says, but your problem is going to be that you're a single woman. It's very dangerous, blah, blah, blah. And he just was so firm about that. And I said, oh, oh. And I thought about it. It took me a couple months. And I said, you know what? He's right. I got to get out of here. And so that is what happened. Now, what happened in those eight years was I had a net worth of about 760000 when the whole thing started. By the time I figured out to leave in 08, <laughs> I had a net worth of negative $275,000. Oh. So basically, I'd lost about a million dollars between legal fees, supporting my family, and trying to figure out different ways to make money. And so I left. But now, before I left, about a year before I left, of course, the whole story was famous, right? It was always newspapers, TV, radio, and everyone was looking for the second installment. And, oh, Dr. Daniel's going to make it, you know? Okay, so these, these guys, two white guys, heard the story. And they had the white guy perspective, which is very helpful. This is why I'm totally against equality. I'm totally against discrimination. Totally, totally, totally. Because the fact that people are different a lot of times is what saves you. You know. Mm, yeah. So these guys, these two white guys had totally different perspectives. So one guy had started many different businesses and was very successful at that. The other guy was his nephew, who was at that time a young man in his 20s. And he totally understood, totally got the internet. I did not understand the internet, didn't understand it at all. So they both marched right into my office one day. And I didn't even know why I was still going to the office because there was no people, nothing happening used to have it. And they walked in and they said, are you Dr. Daniels? I said, yes, I am. And they said, we're here to help you. We know what your problem is. We've got the answer. I said, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a different approach. Sure. And they said, the internet is the answer. It's going to make you rich. I said, really? Well, what do I have to do? Give us $3,000. We'll put you online and that'll solve your problems. I said, all right, $3,000, cheaper than a lawyer. They kept their word. They put me online. They hooked up the payment processor, everything. And by the time I left, finally decided to leave the country, I was making between zero and a thousand dollars a month. But wait, they must have hooked me up five years, 2003, 2004 is when they hooked me up. And I didn't understand the power of the internet or even anything how to use it. So the first five years, I just I didn't really make any money. I made enough money to not starve to death. I mean, enough to, you know, buy a little food. But that yes, brings us up to 2008. But those guys were absolutely pivotal, absolutely pivotal. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty early for uh, an internet business, for sure. But they knew he had the young nephew who figured it out. He himself was a multiple, you know, had many businesses going very successfully. He had a house in Florida, a house in New York, and lived in just really the best part of town. There weren't any blacks living at that part of town of Syracuse. Might have changed by now. I don't know. But before I left, he had a stroke. Interesting. And yeah, a very bad stroke. And that was the end of that. And I contacted his nephew and said, hey, you know, could I go visit him? He says, no, 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 no. You can't visit him. His wife's in charge and she hates all of us natural people. So just, uh, yeah, leave it alone. He's not going to recognize you anyway. I said, oh, so that was the end of it. Hmm. Well, I've heard you say you wish you moved to Panama sooner. It's pretty clear from the story why you would say that. But for the people who might be afraid to leave their comfort zone, 
What can you say about being an expat in Panama? Well, first of all, let's talk about the comfort zone. If you are comfortable in that comfort zone, then stay. Don't leave. <laughs> that's the answer. And that's the truth. So my comfort zone, I was in the United States and literally my comfort zone had vanished. There was no comfort. So for me, looking at an unknown country where I didn't even speak the language was a relief. Hmm. So I say, if enough stuff in America is working out for you, then maybe it's not time for you to leave if you're comfortable there. Don't leave your comfort zone. I didn't have a comfort zone when I left. Fair enough. Well, I think a lot of us see the writing on the wall here and are probably thinking about leaving before we get a target on our own packs individually. I know I am, but the unknown is intimidating for a lot of people. Panama has been a good experience for you. And yes, you were pushed to that decision. But how has it been maybe different from what you might have thought as an American that could have had a little trepidation about leaving? I had none. I had none. I finally realized I had to go. I got on a plane, went to Austria, checked it out for a week. Didn't even stay the full week. Out of here. Nope. Went to St. Lucia, went to Jamaica. I was buying tickets to anything I could think of and trying it out for, you know, a day, a week, or whatever. And Panama won because the people were so friendly. And the locals and even the fellow American expats were very kind and nice. So that's what did it to me. Also, the cost of living was so low. I was in the United States at that point, 2008, and I could not, all my frugality, get my monthly expenses below $3,000 a month. And that was just not possible for me to, I just didn't have the cash. I was in debt, and I could only go so far, much further in debt before I was totally insolvent. So I had to get out. And at that point, you could live in Panama on $500 a month, which... I could swing that. Well, maybe that's a place people should be looking because I think well, that... Well, 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 that was $500 a month in 08. So what is it now in 2022? Probably increased a lot. A lot. I would say, realistically, 1500 a month. You could live, make ends meet, and be happy. On 500 a month back then, I could pay rent, internet, electric, cell phone bill, go out at least once a week and do one or two international trips a year. All right. On $500 a month. Now you couldn't do that. So talking to different people, they tell me now the number is closer to $1,500. Mm. Well, it's interesting because I think Americans are conditioned to just be ignorant of the rest of the world and be even a little bit fearful of the rest of the world and think that it's all just crime lords and, and gangs. And it's nice to know that there's plenty of places people can go that are quite enjoyable and much better. Every place you go, there is crime. Every place you go, there's a way to become a victim. So you've got to make up your mind you're not going to. So the pattern I've noticed in people in Panama who become victims is they're buying or selling drugs or they're buying or selling sex. Or they fail to take just routine security precautions that they would take in the United States. For example, in the United States, if a stranger knocks on your door, you're not going to open it and say, oh, come on in. You know, 
maybe you'll ask a few questions. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Well, to get into your book, The Lethal Dose, you write, adequately discussing the lethal dose and why your doctor is most certainly prescribing it demands that I first define lethal dose and how that concept was introduced to me in medical school. Right. Well, this was really eye-opening for me. What's the deal here? <laughs> okay, so you, as a layperson, you understand a lethal dose to be a dose of medicine that would kill someone. Right. That's your understanding. Mm. In a medical school, the lethal dose is expressed, or the safety is expressed as a ratio between the amount prescribed and the lowest dose known to result in death. That's a ratio. So if the ratio is one, that means that the dose your doctor is prescribing has been known to kill people. Right, ratio is one. So for many drugs like blood thinners, the ratio is one. Blood pressure medications, the ratio is one. Tylenol, ratio is one. So for a lot of drugs that are commonly used, the dose known to cause death is the same or less than the commonly prescribed dose. Right. It's like we know that drug companies do everything they can to get more people on their products, but they do get patients to consume as much of it as they can until hitting that LD50 level. And we don't hear as many people talking about that. Well, LD50 is the same, but what about LD0? I mentioned that in the book. What about LD10? What about the dose at which 10% of folks taking it die? Is it okay to prescribe that dose? I wouldn't think so. Right. So the other thing too, again, using LD50 as a deadly dose, that means until a doctor's killing half of all the folks he prescribes it for, he's not prescribing the lethal dose. Hmm. That's a convention, like using zero as a space saver in numbers. Right. And it's just so crazy. You go through a couple of examples of drugs in the book, and the numbers are just super eye-opening. I guess for you, the first one was Coumadin. Is that how you pronounce it? Coumadin, blood thinner. Right. Talk about that as an example of how this works. So Coumadin is a blood thinner, and it makes the blood thin. Supposedly, if you have a stroke caused by a blood clot, the doctor puts you on Coumadin and thins your blood so you don't have any more blood clots that cause strokes. What they don't tell you is the Coumadin thins your blood, so now the blood leaks out of the blood cells, and you have kind of a slow-motion stroke. And eventually, the Coumadin is going to kill you with a hemorrhagic stroke which is much more difficult, almost impossible to recover from. Same thing with taking Coumadin for, you know, deep vein thrombosis in your leg. And they've done research, of course, on safety, which is very important. And so what they've calculated is how many people would die untreated, say, from a leg blood clot. All right, we got that number. Let's call it 10. Then they say, okay, fine, you can prescribe how much Coumadin you have to prescribe at what dose and how long to kill 10 people. And so what they then say, they presume that it's okay to prescribe the Coumadin up to and including Coumadin killing the number of people who would have been saved. So the number of people whose lives would have been saved equals the number of people killed by the drug. That's the safe dosage and frequency and duration for the drug. Now notice there's no net benefit to the public, right? The same number of people are dying. You're just selling more drugs. <laughs> right. 
and more doctor's visits too, of course. Mm. So of course, stupid me, medical school, raised my hand. Uh, can't we just prescribe the Coumadin until it saves the lives, but not until people die? What's that dose? Like, oh, we haven't done that research yet. Uh. Mm. And we hear about these little isolated incidents, like a lot of people are talking about remdesivir with COVID. People talk about no, the no, no, HIV no. drug, Stop. but this is it an is industry not, it's standard. It's not an isolated incident. It's every single drug, every single drug. This is true, whether it's Tylenol, whether it's aspirin, whether it's an inhaler for asthma. All drugs are being prescribed at this level of lethality. Yeah, that's what I was getting at is people need to understand that it isn't these isolated stories. There might be no. a story that gets you to think about medicine in these terms, but then you widen right. it out and it is industry standard. Correct. Correct. And you've used the term standard of care. Well, let's talk about that. How does it get established? Very mysteriously. So when we were in medical school, I asked, okay, standard of care. Great. No problem. Hey, I'm a team player. How do I find out what the standard of care is? Let me go get it sent and practice it. The problem with that, with making it that cut and dry, is then the drug rep would not be able to influence doctors during his visit, right? Because they would say, whoa, 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 I have a standard of care here. You're not on it. Get out of here. So basically the standard of care is what the doctor down the street would do. Like, you know, if you're Christian, it's what would Jesus do? If you're a doctor, it's what would the doctor down the street do? So this means a doctor is totally prohibited, as you can see, from providing individualized care to people, right? Mm-hmm. The doctor down the street didn't see your patient, so he might not do what is clearly, obviously, in the best interest of this patient because he didn't see this patient. So it creates a very low standard of mediocrity. So that's one thing the standard of care does. The other thing the standard of care does, leaving it this vague, is the hospital administrator gets to establish a standard of care based on profit. This has gone to court. This has been legally disputed. And in New York State, it is clear the hospitals won. They're allowed to tell the doctor exactly what drugs to use and not use in their hospital based on their bottom line. Wow. Yeah. So I stopped admitting patients to the hospital because I would admit a patient to the hospital, write all the orders, go back home. I got up at 2 a.m. to do this. And then wake up in the morning only to find every drug I wrote for had been substituted or changed. All right. Then I said, well, that's, that's dangerous. I said, okay, so now I got the patient's family to bring in all the drugs from home that he was on, that he's on. I wrote for them, and all the nurse has to do is go to the bedside and administer it. Then they started prohibiting even that. And that was when I said, no, forget it. I'm not going to be a part of this bloodshed and this killing. Mm. Man, yes, I had this quote from the book down that kind of summarizes all the aspects of this, but you say the standard of care is transmitted to doctors through mailings, through continual medical educational conferences and textbooks. It's not something he's free to ignore. When doctors ignore the standard of care, they can lose their hospital privileges, as you mentioned, right. and therefore their right to earn money by working at hospitals. They can also be subject to malpractice lawsuits because malpractice law is very clear and says that if a doctor fails to adhere to the standard of care, then they can be found liable. So right. the doctor's in a little bit of a pickle here, as you say. And this obviously keeps everyone in line. And when you reverse engineer it all back, the standard of care is often set by the drug companies themselves who are incentivized to throw as many drugs out there as they can without it being obvious they're killing people, kind of, is one way to put it. 
It's worse than that. You have the drug companies, which you've just described, but then you have the insurance companies. Many insurance companies simply process claims, and whatever the claims cost, they get to keep a percentage of that amount as a processing fee. So the insurance companies actually don't have an incentive to cut costs or reduce drug usage. Mm, yeah, that's clearly another important layer. Right. So they pile on with their standard of care, the drug companies, I mean, the insurance companies. And then the hospitals have their own standard of care. And now with the emergence of mega clinics and HMOs, they have a standard of care. So you have this one doctor who's subjected to three or four often conflicting standards of care. Man, and you have a, a chart in the book that obviously is a little dated. I'm sure the numbers still check out. Oh, no, they're much larger. They're much larger. <laughs> I, I went back to redo the, redo the chart, and literally I started crying because the numbers topped a million. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, in the book, it's about 850,000 a year die right. from the standard of care being followed. Now it's over a million. What more can you tell people about the details in there? There's a lot of... Uh, of wild stuff that's happening, huge numbers of people dying from just following the conventional Western medical advice. From a thoroughly competent, well-trained, certified doctor. And your doctor is absolutely doing the right thing. You have no legal recourse because malpractice is based on him following the standard of care. If he harms you, but he followed the standard of care, then, hey, no money for you. Right. But that standard of care is the most harmful thing you can do. <laughs> so the other thing I'd say is what's really going on now is things have progressed. So with the advent of the electronic records, all of your records are basically released to the government, the property of the government, the insurance companies and drug companies, and really anyone else who wants to know before you even get home from the doctor's office. Wow. Yeah. And they're advancing that more and more throughout the last two years and going forward. But not only that, I mean, what's really cool, people worry about Facebook. Oh, I'm going to delete my Facebook so they don't track me. <sighs> what about your medical record and that information? With the information, your medical record, you know, your next of kin, your date of birth, your social security number, where you work, your address, the name of your dog, if you have a dog, if you own guns, where you, where you store them, what your religion is, what church you worship at, all this is in your medical record. Doctors are told to ask these questions. So what's happening now is the major customer or citizen surveillance mechanism is totally going under the radar. And everyone's looking over at social media when it's your doctor that has you under surveillance. Great points. And so we have over a million people a year in America dying from the best Western medicine has to offer. And what surprised me is when you break it down, at least in, in the numbers in the chart, over 30,000 related to surgeries, over 60,000 related to hospital bed sores. I mean, that's probably surprising to people. Yeah. This doesn't seem like first world, first rate care. So what America is going through now with the present situation is that people are no longer being socially rewarded for believing the common delusion of the day. So back then, when I wrote that book, if you took your elderly person to the hospital and they died of any of those causes listed in that chart, you were a good person. You did the right thing. The doctor did his best. Oh, doc, we're so happy that you were there. 
And so everyone has positive, warm, fuzzy, feel-good feelings about murdering grandma. Okay. But now what's happening is you have a similar situation being done and extended to the whole population. And people are beginning to feel like, like they're a sucker, like they've been had. And they're not being rewarded. For example, if you took mom to the hospital before, well, you collected your sick day, you got paid at work, all kinds of pretty nice, okay, things happen. But now you say to a person, we want you to totally cooperate with and believe the delusion of the day. And your reward for believing this delusion is you can no longer work, you have no income, you got to stand six feet away from people that you were holding hands with yesterday. You've got to wear a mask. You've got to get stabbed like a voodoo doll. So the reward for believing the delusion is not there. And in the medical system, what they did when I was still a doctor is if you were a doctor, you could hand out poisons to your patients, but do natural stuff at home if you wanted to. Now what they're saying is no, 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 no. If you're going to be a part of the killing field, you've got to toss your life, your own life into the ring. You can't be a hypocrite. So what's happening now, what people are going through is all of the positive reinforcements and incentives, economic and cultural, for participating in the delusion have been removed. Right. That's a very important point. And it's probably the catalyst for why so many people are looking for other answers these days. I'm seeing, even if it's just confusion, they're coming out of that fog and they're looking for the natural ways again. And maybe that's the silver lining. Well, wait a minute. They're not looking for the natural. Well, you can say they're looking for the natural ways, but they're coming out of this very warm thing you call the comfort zone where they were getting the rewards that they needed, the social acceptance, the social praise, the economic sufficiency, whether it's a full belly, a roof over their head, whatever their economic needs were met, they are now looking for another way to get those same needs met. And many of them are not looking to freedom as an option. They're looking for a better servant. Mm. And that is where the hazard lies. Right. Another great point. And so a story we hear time and time again is that cheaper natural solutions that people wouldn't expect to work actually do and far superior to Western medicine and all its technology and all its accreditations and all this stuff. And this is something you found with turpentine. And the story is just really fascinating. Can you talk to us about how you learned about turpentine and some of the history of its use? I know this is a transition, but I'm trying to fit it into the first hour. Okay, so people can go to my website, vitalitycycles.com, and get the whole report for free. It's an amazing read. It reads like a mystery story and an action novel almost. (laughs) (laughs) But basically, as I mentioned my medical practice, the death rate in the practice went to zero when I gave people a choice. However, what I noticed was I was able to reverse disease, but only as long as the person was totally compliant. If they missed something like a glass of water a day or didn't have three poops at two instead, or if they ate a candy bar, bam, they were sick again as if they hadn't ever done anything. And I said, well, this is not 
what I'm after. I'm really after resetting that person back to their pre-illness, pre-sickness condition, where they can eat an occasional candy bar or drink an occasional soda pop and the world won't fall apart. So what is it that's going to actually reverse their condition and make them healthy again? So at first, well, I knew the answer did not lie in a drug, so forget that. And so I started reading all kinds of natural healing books. And after you've read a few books, you really get a little discouraged because it's just nothing more than an advertisement for a supplement, right? There's not really a whole lot here. And so I went through about 300 books, didn't find anything. Then I was homeschooling my kids. And so I noticed I got this thing, Black History Month, right? So this thing came across my desk, Black History Month, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it says, well, you know, during slave times, the medicines used by the slave was the most effective, more effective than the medicines used by the Indians, medicines used by poor rural colonials, or the medicine used by the wealthy. And when the wealthy slave owner became sick, so sick that his doctor said, this is it, give away everything you own, the, the end is near. He would literally go to the slave quarters and say, what do I have to give you? Whatever you want, just get me better. And so they would get them better. I'm like, huh, I wonder what that thing was that they used. And I could not find out what it was. And finally I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I have people in my medical practice who are descended from slaves. Let me ask them. And so I started asking them. And finally, one person said, oh, my God. <laughs> Must be that turpentine. <laughs> he thought he'd escaped it because he's Mother and grandmother made him take it every week. And so when he came north, in addition to leaving the difficult situation in the south, he thought he had left turpentine behind. And so for me to ask him about, ask him, was there anything that cured everything, super cheap, and used by your mother or grandmother? He says, oh, it was turpentine. He says, whenever anyone got sick, she'd come running with that bottle of turpentine. And so I said, oh, well, great. Okay, so how much? How often? He says, oh, no, no, no. It's turpentine sugar. I don't know how much. I don't know how often. I said, well, well uh, so I, so when did she die? Ah, she's still alive. Oh, she's in a nursing home? No, 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 no. She's 92 years old, taking care of her own house, sweeping the floor, cooking her own food. I said, really? He said, yep. I said, well, maybe I could talk to her. He says, well, I don't know. She keeps to herself pretty much these days. So that was it. That's all I had to go on. Turpentine sugar, so. I said, okay. I went down to the hardware store, got turpentine, went to the grocery store, got some sugar cubes. And I said, okay, going to find out something here, a drop dead one. And so I wrote my will, had it on top of the fridge where it could be easily found. I told my receptionist, if I didn't show up for work, don't worry, just cancel the patients. Mm-hmm. And then I went home and took turpentine. I started off with one drop. I took one drop in a sugar cube and nothing happened. I was like, oh, my God, nothing happened. <laughs> I felt like I'd gotten away with something, you know. So it turned out I had to go all the way up to a teaspoon, and then, boom, it was like my whole mind cleared up. I felt just as energetic and strong and sharp as when I was 11 years old. It was amazing. And I said, oh, this is interesting. And so then I had, of course, there's no end of sick people, right? So I had my sister-in-law, my mother, and my sister tried out, and it was just amazing. People's aches and pains went away. They felt better. Their digestion improved. It was just amazing. 
I said, okay, I'm going to offer this to my patients who have incurable things like lupus or crippling arthritis or mysterious stuff that's incurable. And I got wonderful, excellent results. And then I started expanding it to more and more people. And it was just amazing. And so finally, I did a recording of my findings and the dosing and the scheduling and everything. And then when I left the country, I transcribed the recording and then adapted it, you know, for a written format. And I met, well, before I adapted it, I met this marketer because I was working online, was kind of floundering, wasn't really doing great. And so I listened to all these things about how to do better. And they said, well, you got, if you've got a product that's worthwhile, you need to buddy up with a marketer. And I didn't realize this, but there's a lot of marketers online who could, honestly, they could sell ice to an Eskimo, but they don't have worthwhile products to market, but they have incredible marketing skills. So I found such a marketer and he said, okay, I'll do it. And we did it. We launched the manuscript, which is just a PDF and sold $35,000 in one week. Wow. That's what I said. I said, wow. I'm a believer. I'm a believer. Yes, the internet. Oh, praise Lord. <laughs> but then, of course, he was an unusual guy. He was a raw food person. He says, okay, that's it. Taking my portion. I'm going off to Hawaii to eat raw vegetables. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Can we do a follow-up? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can get a roll here. He's like, ah, no, I'm out of here. Goodbye. Mm. So there I was. But the internet being the internet, the report was ripped off. It was plagiarized. Well, not even praised, just stolen and given away for free. People were getting such amazing results that they said, no one should ever have to pay for this. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> right. But you can pay for so the, the stuff the that kills The same do-gooders, you know, what do they call them? The new able communists who don't believe they should pay their student loans. Ah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So those people. And they put this on every single little heal yourself billboard of the internet, all over the YouTube with some introductory blah, blah, blah. And then the link, it was, so I just, the whole stream was just gone. So I couldn't sell it anymore because it was available for free. Then I hired a marketer and told him my sob story and he called me stupid. He said, oh, you're so stupid. I said, okay, educate me. He says, look, this free report is giving you free advertising. It would cost you millions. So now all you do is start a product where you teach people how to implement the report. Oh, I said, really? He said, absolutely. And then when I did that, things really turned around and exploded. And would that be the vitality capsules that work in conjunction with the turpentine? Right. That was actually built into the report, which was actually the truth. So what happened is I had to invent vitality capsules in order for the people in my medical practice to be able to use turpentine because a lot of them were not pooping three times a day. Right. And that's in a very, uh, a very important part of the process. But I wanted to ask you about the labeling of turpentine, because as you say in that report, yeah. if you go to find it on the store shelves, which is a hardware store, funny enough, yeah. you will find some pretty crazy labels that say things like known to cause birth defects in the state of California, yeah. fatal, deadly if swallowed, right. contact your doctor immediately. If you put any of this in your mouth, call poison control immediately if swallowed. Right. How did a miracle cure get such aggressive warnings on it? <laughs> it turned out that the drug industry lobby did that. 
And they even tried to get Vicks Vaporub taken off the market because it contains turpentine. Huh. But Vicks fought and got Congress to give them an exemption for topical use. And they basically said you cannot use turpentine as an ingredient in any liquid pharmaceutical. As late as 1975, there was turpenhydrate, which is a liquid turpentine cough syrup that was on the market in the United States. And when I entered medical school in 79, people swore by it, like, oh, my God, doc, please give me a strip of that turpenhydrate. That's why I had a terrible cold. It knocked it right out. So I went to the senior doctor and said, oh, patient wants turpenhydrate. Ah, no turpenhydrate for him. Give him some robitussin. Hmm. I'm like, huh? <laughs> Well, everyone knows Robitussin doesn't really do all that much. And this patient is asking for something that's worked in the past. Why aren't we giving it to them? I mean, well, you know, we just don't do that anymore. And so that was my first inkling. But I didn't realize turpentine was turpentine. And, of course, the Internet wasn't available then. You couldn't really research things quickly, right? I would have to take half an hour to walk to a library, another hour to look stuff up. And one thing to make sure in medical school is you have no time. It's a 90-hour-a-week grind. So that happened. And then they moved turpentine out of the grocery store. Then they moved it out of the pharmacy and even in the hardware store, there's all these warnings on it. And I remember as a child, the public service announcements, how turpentine is dangerous. You have to get it out of the house. It'll kill your children. And then, of course, California, the king of paternalism or queen of paternalism, declares it dangerous and cancer causing. Right. And for people who don't know what it is, it's the essential oil of the pine tree, basically. And for people who might doubt this story, you actually cite that if you go to the Merck Manual, which was published in 1899, and you look up turpentine, it will let you know that turpentine therapy is effective against gonorrhea, meningitis, arthritis, abdominal difficulties, and lung disease. That's a Pretty widespread right there. And of course, a lot of other things. Well, actually, there you too. can't look up turpentine. You can't look up turpentine in the Merck Manual. It's not organized that way. So the 1899 Merck Manual is only 100, I'm 75 pages. It's so short. But you look under each disease in the manual and you see turpentine listed as a cure. Every disease. Just do a page turn. Interesting. Now, the problem, of course, is. It's listed in minims and drops and this is and that's totally unintelligible to modern man because the units are not proper. But it is there and, you know, it's considered to be the cure. And that's the important thing to understand. And from that, you can go to VitalityCycles.com and look at my English version using modern day measurements. Mm -hmm. And you have a protocol that you recommend people should make sure they're engaging with before getting to turpentine. Right. Really the things everybody should probably be doing, period. But what are those things? Well, I think maybe to say why should you do those things, right? Like why? Sure. Because in the old days, kids were given turpentine as early as two months of age. And so because they were given turpentine on a regular basis at such an early age, the body adapted to turpentine and created the systems for processing parasites. Whereas a modern-day person, let's say you're an adult, you're 20, 40, 60 years old, your body has not been exposed to turpentine and has not developed those pathways for processing parasites. 
And when you introduce turpentine into your body, there's literally a mad rush for these parasites that want to leave. Like, oh my God, oh, get out. You got to get out of here. This is terrible. <laughs> and so if you don't have the exit channels, the desirable ones open, then the parasites will rearrange themselves and make you very uncomfortable. So that's why you need to prepare yourself. So you need to hydrate yourself, drink enough water. That would be one quart per 60 pounds of body weight. I recommend distilled water that be purified water. It's critical because parasites are actually in the water supply as well as the food supply, but at least don't drink them. Um, so hydrate yourself, poop three times a day, more is fine, but at least three times a day, poop. And that way your intestines, things are moving along, moving along, moving along. And so your liver can just dump the parasites into the flow, just dump them into the flow. And the parasites don't get stuck in your body and go to your brain and give you a headache or to your lungs and give you a cough or to your skin and give you a rash. So then you want to simplify your diet so that you're not eating any more parasites. And a fine point most people don't seem to get when they read the book is you have to reduce your meats to about your meats and animal products to about half of your present consumption or eliminate them totally. And then it goes through the modifications to make to simplify your diet. And then you can start taking turpentine. And most people find it's a very smooth, easy experience. And the report tells you how to find your own personal dose. Now, a lot of people say, well, do I have to stick to this diet forever and ever and ever? The answer is no, because all you're doing with this preparation is creating this pathway and creating the ability in your body to handle and dispose of large amounts of parasites at once. And so as you get results and things are moving along, you can cut back on the measures recommended in the pamphlet. But if you start feeling bad, then you have to you know, go back to the recommended measures in the pamphlet. And when people get to the turpentine part, talk to us about what the reports are that people end up seeing in their stool. Oh, it's just, honestly, I just ignore them. I tell everyone, just ignore your stool and just flush the toilet. People talk about seeing worms and seeing insects and seeing white fluffy stuff and yellow fluffy stuff and black tarry stuff and, and orange stuff. And it's just amazing what was blocked up inside of people. Right. Seems like we have way more parasites than we realize. Correct. So I say, relax. Don't even look at the toilets. Flush it. And as long as you're feeling better, that's what counts. Mm -hmm. Right. And I also wanted to just slide in something about solutions. I mean, we're talking pretty negatively. Of course, solutions are diet and water, but what about the no, system no, no, itself? No, no. I got third that. We've gone one better than that. People say, oh, Dr. Daniels, all this bad news. What am I going to do? What do I do at home if this, if that? So I actually did the research. What are the reasons people go to the hospital? And I took each reason people go to the hospital and explained how people can handle that problem at home. In less than 15 minutes, less than the time it takes the ambulance to arrive, you've handled the situation. Whether it's a heart attack, a stroke, whatever. And that's called the Home Healers Program. It's available on my website, vitalitycycles.com. Best investment you'll ever make. And, you know, you won't need to see your doctor again. You won't need to call an ambulance, go to a hospital, just walk away. Personally, I've not had health insurance for over 30 years. and I'm just fine. Haven't seen a doctor either. Very 
Interesting. Have you found any condition that can't be treated with this kind of protocol? Well, let's put it this way. If it can't be treated with this, it sure can't be treated by a regular doctor. Good point. I mean, you're not going to get a better outcome going to <laughs> <laughs> putting yourself in the head of the executioner or sending your loved one to a nursing home with 53% death rate in six months. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Let's wake up. And I do say, you know, I do, it's a home healer's course. I cover every single affliction. And I do tell you certain afflictions, you know, this is not going to end well. This is um, pretty close to the end here. And that's another thing. Somewhere along the line, America's been sold immortality. Yeah, it's true. They've been sold the idea that the doctor can keep you alive. Whatever your problem is, the doctor can save your life. Nobody can save your life. Life is itself a death sentence. It's going to end in death. Yeah. The question is only when and how. Do you want to die before you've had chemo or after? <laughs> Chemo's not going to save your life. Do you want to die before radiation or after? Do you want to die after you've had the uterus taken out or before? It doesn't matter. That's the question. And so people are not even, the choices are not even phrased, honestly. Yeah. The doctor really should say to the person, would you like to die without your uterus or with your uterus? Mm. Yeah. Because, of course, surgery is recommending whatever is not going to solve the problem. There are so many tricks of language and labeling certain things and definitions. And we've been trained in a certain way. And it's really difficult to unravel all that. But you're doing a great job. Well, thank you. Yes. And, uh, you know, we talked a lot about your book, The Lethal Dose. But you do have another book out there. Do you have the guts to be beautiful before we exactly. go? We should tell it people about you. that. It tells you how to be wrinkle-free at 64, just like me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to get into that uh, that thinning and baldness chapter because uh, I do suffer from that affliction. Exactly. So it, it talks about really how to upgrade your looks. For example, you notice I don't have age spots and liver spots and moles, and it's because of the things in the book. So it really does help you look even feel a lot better. Right on. So yeah, you got the two books, you have the Vitality Capsules, you've got the program. Anything else people should know about products or services that uh, you offer or things you have coming up? I do have a podcast. It's called Jamming with Jen. (laughs) And I talk about just the healthy lifestyle things that I do. For example, one week I picked a hibiscus fruit and made hibiscus jam. And that was the first episode that I rebranded as Jamming with Jen. And I talk about really different ways of looking at things in your life in order to get better results health-wise and all around. Awesome. Wow. Well, we covered a lot of ground and I very much appreciate your work and your time and the bold and raw truth. You're certainly one of my favorite people and I'm lucky that we got a chance to talk. Uh, Very much appreciated and keep fighting the good fight. Okay, you're welcome. Pleasure's mine. Yes, people, Dr. Jennifer Daniels, someone I've actually had on my list for a long, long time. She really doesn't mess around. Her story seems more relatable than ever, sadly. She tried to gum up the big machine and she faced the wrath. And it's a story I really wanted to highlight for you guys. And as she said, it's a story that shares a lot of parallels with the truckers in Canada. 
And unfortunately, I think it's going to be something that's even more common as we go forward. It's why building the network and surrounding yourself with like-minded people is so important. How many people do you keep in your life that if you were to face a cancellation of some kind, they would be pretty unempathetic and say, well, I don't know why he didn't just follow the rules. You can't go around disobeying the government. I think a lot of us got those kind of attitudes during COVID and with the vaccination situation, and it highlighted the need for change. So I hope you've made some changes because it's only going to keep happening. I definitely feel for myself that it's getting a bit dicey to talk about hard truths these days, and the trend is not encouraging. Anyway, this episode is a little short. We had a hard time getting connected at first, had to throw an audible and record with a different system, shaved off about 20 minutes of the time we had. But my main goals were accomplished because I wanted her to give her perspective on the standard of care, tell her personal story. And then I was talking with Gordon maybe a couple of months ago about all the things he's been implementing health-wise because he's been pretty motivated on that front lately. And he mentioned turpentine, and I said the cliche thing, hey, isn't that harmful? And he linked me to an interview on Dr. Tom Cowan's podcast with the ever-popular Dr. Andrew Kaufman. And Dr. Kaufman basically breaks it all down, says he heard about it from Dr. Daniels, and boom, that pushed me over the edge. I already liked her book and her perspective on the medical system, Throw in that turpentine story, and we got a pretty action-packed show. And it's such an interesting story. It's a great example of people outside the system finding a better solution than the best the system has to offer anyway. It checked the box of cures that are demonized and almost forgotten about, but she brought it back. And when I asked how the slaves knew about this, she of course said she wasn't sure, but after reading Animistic and Getting a better sense of how indigenous people or people who are aware of the living consciousness of all things, the way they can communicate with nature and plants, makes me think that that is how it was discovered. Because at first I thought, well, these people are in a completely foreign environment with different types of plants than what they're familiar with. How could they figure out that the essential oil of the pine needle? was so beneficial. Well, people who were living more embedded in nature with an animist-type philosophy and way about their daily living could get this information pretty easily. But you do need to be careful. Of course, I am just a silly stoner college dropout. I don't give medical advice. I've never taken it although I'm heavily considering it, but it does require some preparation and attention to detail. Make sure you do your own research, such a dirty phrase these days, but don't do anything stupid or reckless. Make sure you have the exact right stuff. Make sure you follow her protocols exactly. Make sure you're ready for it. This interview was only ever going to crack open the door. She has other interviews where they get deeper into the details. She has the Candida Cleaner Report. So you know what to do. But ever since I recorded this, I've been excited to present it to you guys. I wish we had gotten a bit deeper into the expat advice. 
She's right. If you feel that you're in a comfort zone, then there is no reason to leave. But you know how sometimes you work a job you hate way too long or you stay in a bad relationship way too long because the unknown and making a change is just frightening? Maybe the next job is even worse. <laughs> we often talk ourselves out of moving forward from bad situations because as they say, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. And that's really what I meant. We are frogs in boiling water. It's getting pretty hot lately. We might recognize it, but what if we jump out of this pot and the next pot is even hotter? <laughs> Expatriating has never felt more appealing, if you ask me, and I wouldn't have expected to say that with a five-month-old daughter. But we should probably dedicate a few episodes to exploring options with people who really have that as their shtick. But I had to keep this one moving, or Turpentine would not have made it into the first hour, and I would have been so frustrated with myself if that were true. And even then, I wanted to move on to other health-related things that I don't hear her talk about quite as much. So many interviews are one hour, and they don't get further down the chain like I wanted to. But her answer in so many cases is hydration. And it makes sense, because it's like, if you have a problem... The first thing she's going to ask are, are you doing these four or five basic things? And if you aren't doing those things, then there's no additional thing. You have to do the basics. And then if your problem remains, we can talk about extra stuff. It's simple, but it makes just too much sense. I like that she's also very open to talking about different diets for different situations and at different times in your life. We don't get that nuance from everyone. And with the hydration thing, we did an entire show on hydration with Dr. Dana Cohen a couple years ago. I would say that if you add her advice about hydration coming from foods, because you get that good Dr. Pollock gel state structured water, that's even another way to stack benefits. And Dr. Daniel's criticism of the medical system pairs really nicely with Dr. Richard Ammerling who focused on the industry shift towards what they call evidence-based medicine, as well as relative versus absolute risk, and how they fudge effectiveness numbers by using tricks with the data in that regard. And he talked about the ways that doctors' jobs have changed from independent practices to everyone being under the umbrella of a hospital. Probably a bit easier to keep an eye on them that way, isn't it? <laughs> So I do love these kind of shows. They often motivate me to prioritize health again until I get lazy and distracted. And then we bring in another one. I think she also made an important point with the phrase that people are no longer being rewarded for going along. We are going to see a lot of people we know have their worldview and Pavlovian training collapse in on itself. I know a few people wrestling with that right now, actually. So keep it in mind and just understand that it's not an easy process to go through and we should have some empathy. But I would say pretty good one today. We have a really well-rounded first hour that hit most of the big points I hoped we would hit. And then in the plus show, we stacked up quite a bit more. Yeah, we got hung up a bit on my daughter's birth process and complications. Dr. Daniels blasted me pretty hard on some of that, but it's fine. I like hearing it raw, and that's why I am such a big fan of hers and her perspective, and I do see a lot of her points. But I would say it's also easy for a trained doctor who did have two kids in the hospital system to say that we should just have babies at home. 
and we don't need to invoke any sort of medical expert. My wife and I thought a water birth with a midwife and doula was the compromise for having no experience with birth at all. But I've already told you guys how scary it got. I've already expressed this frustration of how my wife avoided her phone because of EMF concerns. She wasn't drinking out of plastic because of the microplastic research out there. She was eating well. She was drinking so much water. And then the day comes and it's like, what was the fucking point? Because now my baby's five minutes old and is hooked up to IV antibiotics in plastic tubing and laying in a NICU EMF soup. And I'm trying to bond while also repeatedly rejecting a hep B vaccine. And it's just all the things we really wanted to fucking avoid. So it felt like nine months of intentional actions were just <laughs> undone in a day. So, yeah, I guess Dr. Daniels is right. We maybe could have done some things differently. We wouldn't have got swept up in the system. <laughs> you know, it just became clear Dr. Daniels does not give partial credit. She's very pass-fail. But all I really wanted to get into was, is there anything now that we should do in terms of countermeasure or supplementation in our daughter's life because of the IV antibiotics? I was just trying to give context for the situation, but she made pretty good points, and hopefully that section was helpful for people who might be entering into a similar situation. Other things we talked about in the Plus show would be other things Dr. Daniels was warned against in medical school that have had positive effects, enemas, the major problems with antibiotics, the relationship between the big machine and alternative care centers, Forbidden foods to unlock your superpowers. All animal parts that we don't eat. Organ meat and skin and all that. Very interesting. Talked about how the system utilizes testing. We talked about the vaccine truth, the cancer truth, other major delusions of Western society, and why nursing homes are just euthanasia programs. Some dark stuff, but it's a dark medical system. Sign up for Plus if you like what I do. Hear the full show as it's supposed to be. Seven-day free trial, don't forget. And big thanks to you people who do stick with Plus and make me feel a bit better about my career choice in these troubled times. Help me help you, as they say. In higher side news, Gordon and I are very close to this Austin, Texas event. I'm still in talks with several venues, but there's always an issue. This one has drinks, but no chairs. This one has chairs, but no food. This one has drinks and food, but it's capped at 100 people. This one has space for 200 people, but no AV equipment. We have just yet to find the sweet spot. And when we get some of these quotes, it's like, Jesus, how are we even going to break even on this thing? We'd have to charge way more than I'm comfortable with just to not lose money. But anyway, mark your calendars, June 25th. Austin, Texas. It's even Gordon's birthday. So how about that? I am a bit nervous about uh, the costs. You know, I never really do these events, but if there's anyone I'm down to do one with, you know who it is. So we're pretty much going to have to sell out whatever we do. So if you're a fan, if you like the Greg and Gordon shows, then you're going to have a good time with us and consider making the trip. I think we could all use a trip. <laughs> And as for the calendar at HiresideMeetups.com, where you can meet other local THC fans and build a better network for the coming age, the next three events we have are March 22nd, just a couple of days away from now, 
a meetup slash walking tour in New Haven, Connecticut with the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And that's the thing. Tell other podcasters in our sphere to use the calendar. Let's have more joint events. I don't care. We're all into the same things. But if you're in New Haven, Connecticut, consider going on this uh, little hike that's happening in a couple of days. Check the calendar for details. April 1st, Denver gets higher at the Blue Moon Brewery. I love Denver. Probably my second favorite city. And then April 6th, we have the Seattle THC Inquisition at Chuck's. And I'll throw this one out there too. April 11th, the Hopkins Wild Boar Pig Chimp Hybrid Meetup at the Wild Boar Bar and Grill on Main Street in Hopkins, Minnesota. <laughs> I like that one. A little invoking of a previous Gordon episode right there. So keep them coming. Make events. Meet your fellow Hireside Chatters in town. And we'll all reach the promised land. Check out Dr. Daniel's website, vitalitycycles.com. Drop her a line if you appreciated this interview. Take care of you and yours. I'm getting out of here. I've done my part. Your move, standard of care setters, natural cure killers, and agents of the medical machine. Your fucking Sometimes when I get down, I eat a bunch of corporate junk. That makes you fat Yeah, it's a weak and sickly people making industry Don't tell me Don't tell me lies Discipline is no fun I find Denial makes it all gone And I don't have to face it Technology, and every now and then I try to quit and leave it be, but it's too hard to turn it off, it's getting worse and
And that is another show complete. Remember, as much as you enjoyed this, which is just the free first hour, I hope you'll become a Plus member to hear the full two-hour interviews. You also can engage with other Plus members in the comments and the forums. And you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions I get, which is where can I find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show? Well, they are free downloads for Plus members too. And without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. We can fit so much more into a two-hour interview, and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. How could it not the way things are going? But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com, where new first-time subscribers always get a free seven-day trial because I'm just that confident. There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check mailed to the P.O. Box, and I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves, and I hope you'll join Plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC Plus will work with their podcast app, and the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high-level app recommendations for whatever phone you use, and the website is made for mobile too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. Informative, entertaining, and action-packed. It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. Thank you for spending some time with me, and cheers to a better tomorrow.